Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Even as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to simmer, there is a good amount of science emerging about the relationship between the information environment and vaccine uptake. Today, we'll hear from two researchers from different disciplines about their work on social media and vaccine misinformation. First up is John Alexander Bryden, Executive Director of the Observatory on Social Media at Indiana University, with whom I discussed the results of some recent research his team had conducted on the problem. And second, I speak with Kalina Kultai, who, when I spoke to her at the end of April, was transitioning from her position as a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for an Informed Public at the University of Washington to a role at Twitter. First up, here's John. I'm uh, John Bryden. I'm the executive director at the Observatory on Social Media at Indiana University. But we've got three, three things in our mission, which is, is to um, provide tools to study misinformation. Second thing in our mission is to actually re- do research on, on misinformation. And the third factor in our mission is to educate the public about how to detect and study misinformation. And you have just released this new study published in Nature, which was titled Online Misinformation is Linked to Early COVID-19 Vaccine Hesitancy and Refusal. Um, So when did you kick off this work? This happened late 2020, early 2021. Uh, We started to gather vaccines tweets from Twitter so we were interested in, in, in studying how misinformation flowed at ge- geographical scales and whether there are any patterns of localised uh, areas of misinformation. And we realised that with the vaccines being released, it would be a great opportunity to study the way that the, the uh, vaccines misinformation is geolocated in particular counties and whether that correlates in some way to uptake and behavior and attitudes around vaccines in those counties. So you created your own data set, is that right? This co-vaccine data set? That's correct. It's a, it's a search, it's an online a stream of, of Twitter data. What we've done is we've, we've been searching Twitter for any tweets that are related to vaccines using a specific collection of search terms. And we've been gathering all the tweets um, that match those search terms since the beginning of 2021. And we've now got nearly 18 months of data, hundreds of millions of tweets. So I understand that you kind of took that data from Twitter and then used another set of information that was drawn from Facebook and kind of federated that then with some CDC data on vaccination uptake rates. Is that right? That is correct. So at the same time as we were doing our Twitter search, the Delphi group at Carnegie Mellon University were doing surveys on Facebook, which were actually happened to me once. They pop up a little question on, on the Facebook the Facebook wall, ask you your attitudes towards vaccination and mask wearing and other things. And they were gathering data for particular counties and looking at the levels of vaccine hesitancy in those counties. At the same time, we also incorporated 
a large amount of other data, not just CDC data and vaccine uptake rates, but demographic data, because we needed to control for things like income, education, religious attitudes, political bias, all sorts of other things, rurality, education levels. You put all this data together and you actually ended up finding a kind of pretty strong association between misinformation about COVID-19 vaccine and vaccine refusal and vaccine hesitancy. How would you characterize that association? That's a great question. Um, we did find this, this uh, strong evidence of correlation between online misinformation and vaccine hesitancy rates. I think one of the striking things is our data predict this a 20% de- decrease in vaccine uptake across the states according to the lowest states with the lowest levels of misinformation and the highest levels of misinformation, which is quite a sizable change. And that's predicted by our, our model. And we saw like a, uh, in democratic counties that were having high levels of misinformation, there was around a, a 70% increase across the, the range in the, the, all the counties in the United States. So we, we did see quite a large effect here. It's not just some small correlation. A lot of studies talk about significance and how significant and how, how, um, how likely we could have seen this pattern due to sort of random noise across the counties. But uh, we, we, we had reasonable results on significance, but the, we think there's more to be investigated there. But we definitely found quite a strong effect, even when accounting for all the other variables. So this was only looking at Twitter data. Is it do you imagine that perhaps the kind of prevalence of vaccine misinformation um, as expressed in Twitter data is probably, I don't know, somehow uh, evident of the general environment around misinformation in those particular geographies? That's a great question. Uh, Twitter is quite biased actually toward more liberal left-wing communities. So uh, I think a lot of people still have used used things like WhatsApp and Facebook uh, to spread a lot of information and misinformation. So I don't, I don't think Twitter is completely representative of, of the population in, as a whole. But what we would say is our study is looking at these, these uh, changes in quite a relative way. So we do account for different factors such as the, the in, inter, internal biases of, of the data. And when you say uh, Twitter is biased to uh, kind of a liberal population, you mean in terms of its user base? Right. Yeah. That, yeah. Sorry to make that clear. Yes. It's the user base is biased. But uh, yeah, studies have found, actually, we published one recently that found that actually the content that is shown to uh, users on Twitter and the types of users they are invited to follow are more likely to be right wing, actually possibly, if there's any biases towards the right. One of the things I just wanted to ask you more generally about this is that you know, there's been a hot debate in this country about whether misinformation uh, plays any kind of causal role in behaviors and whether that means we should do more about it uh, with regard to moderating the social platforms. What does your research suggest about these questions? It's very hard to answer that. And in an absolute way, proving a causal link between one thing and another is extremely difficult. It took many years for people to prove that smoking was linked to cancer, for example. So 
what we do have is this association across the counties. And we did also look at a bit of a study of, of um, what we call a Granger causality analysis. But that, in that sense, there's, um, we were able to, to notice that when there is a, uh, an increase in misinformation in one particular county, we would find an, a corresponding increase in vaccine hesitancy in the same county within about two to six days afterwards. So again, that's like a link between misinformation and vaccine hesitancy survey results. It's not entirely clear that that's a causal link. We are in the process of studying this in more detail, though, and we will be looking at links between anti-vaccination tweets and misinformation tweets and actual vaccine uptake. That's the next step we're working on. You do conclude with a note around questions around better moderation of our information ecosystem. Is there something that you think perhaps a a product manager or someone on trust and safety at Twitter should take from this survey? Is there something they should be doing differently? Uh, I think there's there's a big open question about the way that Twitter should be moderating their platform. I think some of the uh, studies that have been done out there, for example, David Rand's group, have shown that if, if somebody is uh, given a warning that what they're posting might be misinformation, then they are more likely to reconsider and look carefully at what they are posting. That can reduce the levels of misinformation spreading online. So there are, there are numbers of ways that this can be approached rather than a kind of blanket takedown approach. So I'm not sure what we'd advocate for anyway. What's next for your lab? What are the next big research products that we can expect? Well, as I was saying, uh, we're doing a lot of work on this causality analysis. So we're developing that causality picture. We're also interested in who are the main super spreaders of this misinformation, the vaccine's misinformation, whether they they tend to be verified accounts on Twitter, because we we noticed that quite a few of these accounts are verified. We're also looking at, at general surveys of vaccines, misinformation, over time and that's just a small sort of subset of what the observatory is doing we're also working on a study which is looking at uh, how we can promote vaccines confidence amongst the black community we are doing a, a lot of work with our bot detection tools developing those enhancing those and uh, there's a other work which is looking at how to detect other misinformation sites There's plenty going on. John, thank you very much. Thank you. It was great talking to you. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. Next up in this episode about social media and vaccine misinformation is a conversation I had with Kalina Koltat. She's explored how socio-technical systems affect scientific and health decision-making in social groups, with a particular focus on the anti-vaccination movement's use of social media. Here's Kalina. My name is Kalina Koltai. Uh, I also go by Coco. 
up until like a few days ago, I was a postdoctoral fellow at the uh, Center for an Informed Public at the University of Washington. Um, but I am now currently transitioning into a role as an experienced researcher as part of the Birdwatch team at Twitter. Exciting. And hopefully we'll get to come back around and talk a little bit about your upcoming or new experience at Twitter uh, eventually. But let's talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing uh, for the past few years, uh, particularly around vaccine misinformation. I wrote to you after seeing you post a talk that you were giving on vaccine misinformation and COVID. Uh, Can you perhaps for my listeners just Try to encapsulate your research career to date. What have been your key curiosities? You know, I'll start at the beginning of my like vaccine intrigue, if you will, (laughs) Uh, which is all the way back in 2015. I was currently working as a researcher, actually at NASA Ames, looking at UAVs and, uh, you know, dividing like, you know, uh, cockpit systems, pilots looking at like large aircraft and we're like building and designing technologies there. So something completely different uh, working on aircraft. Uh, And right when I was deciding to go pursue uh, a PhD, there was a big measles outbreak in the Southern California theme parks. This is, you know, 2015. And there's suddenly all this conversation about, you know, should we mandate, not only mandate, but we have a vaccine that's already mandated, but should we remove the personal exemptions option that we've had for childhood vaccines? Um, A lot of people sound like, oh man, these people who are anti-vaxxer, they're just like these big idiots or they're just like granola moms. And there was all this conversation about it. And the question that really struck me was like, you know, why are people not vaccinated? Because I had always grown up and thought that, vaccines were good, they were safe, their efficacious are necessary. So why weren't people doing it? Uh, despite all the information and resources, because you can go online and look, here's all the research that says vaccines are safe. And so I had actually emailed my advisor at the time. I hadn't even moved to Texas yet. I'd gotten a program. I was like still packing up. And I was like, hey, I know I told you I was going to study automation, uh, transparency, and trust in automated technologies, but I am actually completely shifting and I'm going to go on this vaccine thing. Uh, and luckily he was very kind and said like, sure, we can explore that. You're you know, beginning the program. And now seven years later, from that moment, <laughs> 2015, I'm still like intrigued in this question. And of course, like uh, there's been a lot to unpack and obviously a lot has happened in the past few years uh, when it comes about the question about vaccine hesitancy and, and this relationship with vaccine misinformation, particularly on social media. But a lot of the things that I've been interested in, I've been focusing on the ways that people use different tools or different socio-technical platforms like Facebook or Instagram, or even cases like Twitter, TikTok, you name it. Um, I've been interested in almost any sort of like communication technology in this way. And the way people use these type of platforms to navigate a space to make a decision about a scientific topic. And so I particularly focus on vaccines, but a lot of this work is applicable to GMO products, to um, climate change, the way that we try to navigate around a topic that you think about that, like there should be in some theory an answer, right? You know, the way we think about science is usually like, oh, the scientists know a way. So this is what I found particularly interesting. So I initially came at this at this idea about like, you know, what are what information are people being exposed to? Um, or maybe people aren't getting the right information. And that model is completely uh, <laughs> a very old, outdated model on that. You know, a lot of people and I teach I teach graduate students. A lot of times people come to this question of misinformation. And the first instinct is the answer is to get people correct information. And so I assume you've ultimately found that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And for anyone that's familiar with something called the information deficit model, 
that's basically that idea is that <laughs> uh, people simply just don't have the information. Um, and so therefore they're making bad decisions. And, you know, this could be applicable in some ways if you think about um, maybe the way we make other health related decisions, like maybe you don't know everything about, you know, the best ways to take care of our heart or um, about maybe preventing cancer or something like that. <laughs> but in the case of vaccines, most people have at least heard in some of their lives, all like the good things about vaccines is something that we see as a pretty like mainstream thought. Um, and that there is uh, because of the internet, a heavy amount of access and particularly in the past few years, a lot of like campaigns, public health campaigns um, everywhere you can see to encourage people to vaccinate. So I would say most literature nowadays says like, you know, the information deficit model, simply people have not seen the information. They're not getting exposed to good information is simply insufficient in understanding the reasons why people decide not to vaccinate and other like scientific controversies. So if we accept that that's not the case, then you're like, well, what the heck is going on? <laughs> And so um, a, a large chunk of my work then thought about values. And when I say values, I would say values are the things that we kind of think are important to us, like things that we're important, like things that are more than just like a belief, but like core components of who we are, of what we think is important. So like for myself, I, I really do think like a value of like education. I always think education is highly important. And that's just one example. There's a lot of different ways we can uh, operationalize or categorize values, but, you know, think about like, what, what do you think? Like some people, family, family is so important to them. It's a high value for them. So I thought about like, well, you know, maybe values has a relationship in the way we think about science. And there is some literature on that. And that some of my work explored some of that, uh, that relationship with like what people think are important. And, and I do think there is uh, some work there because, you know, I don't want to say that there are some people who are going to be more predispositioned to being vaccine hesitant, because I think that's like a really sort of curt way of saying it. But I do think that there is a trend with some people who value this idea of like questioning, if you will. And I, and I know that's a really like controversial way to say it, <laughs> but in a way that there is sort of an appeal to wanting to buck in some component, uh, more so than we would imagine with the, uh, how do I, I want to try to phrase this in a way that doesn't make me sound like I'm on Joe Rogan. <laughs> there is a, <laughs> this is the, you're talking about the kind of just asking questions approach to this, yeah. this thing. Yeah. Like one thing when we look at the rhetoric, um, cause sometimes it's the thing behind the thing, you know, so you'll say like the just asking questions, which I think does two things. It one, uh, kind of like attracts people who kind of like that, that just asking questions, but it's also used as a guise to avoid um, content moderation. So I think it does like the just asking question um, has uh, multiple uses. And when you see it online, because it's like the person who's playing devil's advocate, but you're also searching for the person is also a devil's advocate with you, but you're doing it. So oh, it's like just a prank bro, or like, oh, I'm just asking questions. It's like sort of that same flavor, like, you know, some of the people I've done interviews with uh, about, you know, why they became vaccine hesitant, how they came into those communities and those spaces online, you know, that none of them really identified themselves ahead of time as saying like, oh, yeah, I've always been a conspiracy theorist. You know, people say like, no, I haven't been a conspiracy theorist. That's not my bag. And I think for a lot of people, it was just tried to find an answer to something that didn't make sense for them. So for some people, when we talk about, say, childhood vaccines, nearly every single person I talked to said that they were just trying to figure out an answer online to why, you know, maybe their child uh, was sick or why their child had a reaction that way. Um, and it was often really centered on that, right? Um, so I think, you know, there is a component of, say, at least when we talk about childhood vaccines, you know, 
not being satisfied, I think, with the answer they were given, like, oh, it's just bad luck or because it's something else. And I think it's like I, they wanted some, a, a different answer. They wanted something more. So it's questioning of like what they have been told. So you recently gave a talk on what you call the socio-technical success of vaccine misinformation, which, you know, to a lay listener, that might sound a little odd. You're talking about the success of misinformation. I think you're starting to get into that now. Like, What makes vaccine misinformation successful on social media? So uh, the talk that I titled is the socio-technical success of vaccine misinformation is because, you know, if I go onto like nearly any social media platform right now, I can find vaccine misinformation. And there are accounts that are um, both like big brand name, OG, uh, anti-vax sort of like activists and leaders, like everyone's the names that we know who still have accounts on social media platforms. Um, but there's also a lot of other smaller sort of like micro influencer accounts that are spreading vaccine information in the sense that uh, the way that we have set up the way that we talk about vaccine misinformation, the way that a lot of platform that thought about content moderation in that space has led it up to continuously be successful, not just prior to the pandemic, uh, during the pandemic, and then probably well into after the pandemic, right? And I think this has been a combination of a variety of things. So part of that is this uh, one is the way that we talk about. So we think about the rhetoric of trying to um, navigate the space. So sometimes people use the word dog whistling. uh, And in a way, there is a language to talk about it. And sometimes it's a language that is meant to entice either your current your, your current followers or bring in new followers, but also I think to avoid moderation on the platform because we often think again as moderation as the way to remove content and a way to minimize sort of the spread of misinformation. And so if you put up something that might hint at vaccine misinformation or imply something or say like you should question X Y Z, uh, but that's hey I'm just asking questions that content is not going to get removed. Um, and so not only are you avoiding moderation from the platform, you are also continuously building out your fan base, your followers, right? And I think there are a lot of baked in affordances that are built in to increase engagement that are not necessarily on the whole bad. I think that's the hard part. It's like anything that you have with a social media platform, the, the tool or the affordance or anything like that isn't on its surface as bad. It's just the way that people end up using it. If you use for good, it could be used for bad things. Um, and so we even think about things like ephemeral content. And so when I say ephemeral content, these are content that's temporary. So you might be familiar with something like on Instagram, what they have on um, Instagram stories, you can post um, videos, images, links, all sorts of content uh, that's gone within 24 hours. And uh, Facebook also has this. Um, I think TikTok is even playing an idea with it. So uh, ephemeral content, in my opinion, and even Twitter has done this too. I think they have fleets for a little bit and then got rid of fleets has little to no moderation in that space. Uh, and so uh, some of my colleagues at the University of Washington, particularly Dr. Rachel Moran and uh, one of our PhD students, um, Izzy Grasso, we were all working on looking at Instagram as a particular platform because it is something that's really um, easily on there. So through a variety of ways, we end up collecting a list of highly active Instagram accounts that shared vaccine misinformation, encouraged vaccine hesitancy type behavior, uh, things that were anything from the along the lines of, you know, say vaccines are bad or here, here's all the people who are protesting why you got to protest against vaccine mandates and the whole sort of a spectrum of sort of vaccine content you can imagine. And when we looked at content that was posted to the, the grid, as you call it, it's a post that's there, it's permanent unless it gets removed by the user or by Instagram. Um, oftentimes it's very benign. You wouldn't even know that an account is anti-vaccine or vaccine hesitant, uh, whichever term you want to use. 
but if you go into the ephemeral content, it is a not only drastically much more content, but content that is far more extreme towards uh, pushing uh, vaccine hesitancy, vaccine misinformation, and things that's not being taken down. That you know, every day when we went to go check the Instagram stories, there would be content from these accounts. The accounts were up during this time. Uh, there's, I think, only one account that went down um, while we were actively collecting, which was a massive, like, big name account who was, like, a part of, like, the um, Center for Countering Digital Hates Digital Doesn't. So whose, like, handle the time was got censored. Um, and I think that's also adds to a little bit. It's like, I think, you know, saying that, like, how much they're being censored, how much they're being moderated also adds to it. Um, you know, we were looking at the ways that people navigate around these platforms. And I think because some of the tactics that we see are used inconsistently, that one, <laughs> I don't know if those tactics that they're thinking that they work or it's a, is it more performative for everyone else to say, like, look, we're being moderated by this platform. We need to, like, navigate around this. So sometimes people will do things like, uh, misspell the word vaccine or COVID. People might have even seen this in their day-to-day, uh, but in images, they'll like cross out the word vaccine. They'll sometimes cover things with stickers. And in some cases, use the, some of these affordances to even promote it. So like Instagram had this thing where if you put like a let's get vaccinated sticker on your content, you get promoted and be like, oh, look, here's people who are promoting it, except people who are vaccine hesitant would use the sticker to promote their content. <laughs> And so it's, uh, it's, there's so many of these baked in components, like in a sense, like that would be normally good, but it's being used in, in this really negative way. That's just sort of a little bit about how, uh, <laughs> you know, these social technical platforms, the, the social media companies uh, have a lot of these wonderful tools to sort of integrate and connect with people and, and find a community and all these things that are really wonderful, but uh, they can end up being used for less pro-social reasons. And sometimes in this case, uh, vaccine misinformation. I've talked to multiple people working on any number of issues on social media from the harassment of women online uh, through to COVID disinformation to political misinformation. And they all will tell you that mo- moderation intervention is simply not up to snuff. It's missing some extraordinary percentage of the infractions can we expect these social media platforms or will these social media platforms ever be successful in stemming the tide of all of this stuff? You know, I think there's always going to be content um, on these platforms, but I think one of the big things that I push for, because I know that content moderation is a difficult, difficult problem, um, and I don't envy anyone that's working on it, uh, <laughs> is we need to think about who is disproportionately spreading content that is going viral, right? Uh, So we think about even our big names. And so the fact that some of the largest and biggest names that we see in vaccine misinformation for people who are like anti-vaccination activists are still on platforms. Like why does Robert F. Kennedy still have a Facebook page? Why does Children's Health Defense still on there? You know, um, (laughs) why is uh, Joseph Merkel's books uh, still being sold on Amazon, right? Those are simple things. So I think that when we say like there's not enough, I'm like, there is at least bare minimums I think we can do that we're not doing. And, <laughs> and so I think there could be more. I'm like, and I feel like I'm not asking for the moon. I'm not saying you're going to be able to like trend every single vaccine related misspelling and categorize all. I'm like, look, we're asking for things that are, are very easy, right? Or even like on Facebook, you have a link that you've already flagged for misinformation, but you don't put a fact check on it because it's shared the comment. Things that are, uh, you know, to me seem simple enough to do. Um, so when, when I think people talk about moderation being insufficient is because currently it is insufficient. 
uh, and not things that are unreasonable. So, but when we think about even all that being done, there's still going to be things like holes. I think part of that is like, we need to think about that. What are the affordances? And like, it depends on also how much blame. So if you're thinking of like, what are the things a social media company can do? Um, I think that's really difficult because I think at the heart, a lot of social media platforms, it's ultimately going to come down to a bottom dollar, right? You know, um, with all those Facebook files, we learned that there are things that Facebook could absolutely do to minimize the spread of vaccine misinformation, but people are going to spend less time on the platform. And less time on the platform means less money. We can't fully rely, I think, on a social media platform to do all the things that are like truly the best things for society. With Rachel Moran and Izzy Grasso, you wrote uh, recently about vaccine hesitancy and you appear to conclude, you know, that we've got to get beyond thinking about just social media platforms, that we have to ask some difficult questions about why society has lost trust in institutions and how we kind of address some of the more fundamental and underlying issues. Um, is the is the focus on social media, is the focus on tech distracting us perhaps from those things? I'm speaking to you on the day that Barack Obama is set to deliver an address on misinformation and disinformation at Stanford. And I'm already seeing those types of critiques online from certain quarters that this focus on misinformation and disinformation is a distraction from underlying social issues. You know, I think you can't have one without the other. Um, you know, you need to make fire. You need what heat, fuel and oxygen. <laughs> um, and each of those, I think, are an important component. Right. So I think you know, vaccine misinformation and anti-vaccine sentiment has been around as long as there's been vaccines, well, well, well before the invention of social media platforms. But I will say what social media platforms have done has made it much easier for people to be able to connect with each other, share information, find communities, find and carve out digital spaces uh, in which these sort of ideology can thrive and flourish. And taking something like a global pandemic gives it the sort of push to to really, I think, spread, you know, anti-vaccination sentiment on a, on a bigger global scale than we've been able to see before in a very long time. And so um, it's not all social media, but I think it's a very easy way because, you know, you see vaccine misinformation and vaccine hesitancy in other spaces beyond social media, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, you see it in books, you see it on TV, uh, you know, not to put anyone under the, the gun, but, you know, you look at Tucker Carlson's programs and you see a ton of vaccine misinformation happening there. That's not a, that's not a social media thing. That's that's on the television. But I, I think, you know, when I, I again, pull from some of the work that I did prior to the pandemic, because I think that was just was all this work laying the foundation for why we've seen also so much success, why the movement has seen so much success is because one, you know, I think like there uh, it was really ramping up over the past like decade. Uh, I think it's been slowly growing, figuring out what's going to work, making connection with politics, things like that. But I think when I talk to the people in those spaces, a lot of them were just, I think, particularly angry at the world, angry about the way that healthcare is set up. And, you know, if you think about the way that <laughs> our relationship with like how we trust pharmaceutical companies, right? Some of the criticisms they, uh, people who are in this space bring up about a pharmaceutical company are really valid because, uh, you know, even think about what's happening with the opioid crisis, right? Or the cost of insulin and the other things that regardless of your vaccine stance, you say like, yeah, insulin shouldn't cost $700 or that, you know, like the Sackler family being part of like, you know, promoting <laughs> the spread of, um, you know, painkillers and, and leading to an, um, an opioid crisis, right? There, 
these are criticisms within how we, we develop trust with a pharmaceutical company. So when I used to go to events and talks, like meetups with that other anti-vaxxers go to, um, and it used to be a large store, so I would offer concrete, I would go and I would go to the the presentations that big named uh, people would go to and be like, all right, here's how you help convince someone in your family to not vaccinate. Here's all these reasons why they would actually pull a lot of like historic and current examples of reasons why we shouldn't trust the news or uh, pharmaceutical companies or things like that. And I was like that it it's I oh, I'm joking. I can almost turn anyone to be anti-vaccine because some of the quirks or questions and components of why you start chipping away trust are things that are really valid things that are true. You know, once we think about the way, um, like particularly like women exp- experiences in healthcare and their oftentimes their symptoms or their needs being dismissed by healthcare professionals, that is a very real thing that has happened for many years, um, still happens today and disproportionately I think happens to, to women of color. But then when you think about like a woman bringing in like, hey, I, my kids have these symptoms and they get dismissed by their doctor. It's like, oh, it's not a big deal or don't need to worry or do X, Y, Z, it, it adds to that problem, right? So when that talks about revitalize, like we got to, you know, rethink really difficult problems that we have in society, the way we think about uh, what are the other large reasons why people might be more predispositioned to coming vaccine hesitant. So one thing you just said uh, really resonated with me, which is the idea that these movements have built power for a long time on these social media platforms. And we see that in a number of different contexts. I'm thinking about particularly election misinformation and the QAnon phenomenon, right, which was allowed to kind of fester on social media platforms for some years before ultimately the platforms took action. And you've got a kind of similar dynamic where once the harm becomes apparent, as it did in the COVID situation with vaccine misinformation, it's almost too late to do the big moderation effort, right? The ideas are already uh, well disseminated and the communities have formed. There's a lot of membrane and connection between those communities that even if you stamp out certain tweets or Facebook posts, or maybe even kill a few accounts, it's hard to kill that ecology that these various communities have formed. So I don't know, what do you make of that? Um, is that? Is that a right assessment of it? That it's, we're still living in a world that social media built a couple of three or four years ago, even if they've moved to take more severe action of late. Yeah, I think part of that is also thinking about that it's not just one social media platform. It's more than just Facebook or Instagram or Meta. I think I'll use this as an example is um, Pinterest. Pinterest is a great example because they back, if you think 2016, 2017, they were suffering from a, a vaccine misinformation issue. Is that a, you know, we had, they had users creating boards, you know, creating community. And it's like a different type of social media platform. People don't often think about Pinterest. You're like, oh, it's a bunch of moms. But I think about that in relationship to like, you know, vaccine misinformation. It, it was a potential like real big hub. And there were papers coming out about, look at this happening on Pinterest. Um, and, you know, you can make a collection of links and accounts. Anyway, they decided, I believe in 2018, that they were just going to shut it down. And initially like blocked like anti-vaccination constantly couldn't search for like anti-vaccine or vaccine misinformation stuff, just made it. And then they eventually update their policy all within that year to say, look, we are only going to accept uh, vaccine information from internationally recognized health organizations. And that they took a really extreme <laughs> sort of uh, cut at it. And I think some people were upset, but I think it, because it wasn't 
2022 at that time when they made that decision, I think it went like rather under the radar for a lot of people. I think, you know, for the, when the anti-vax movement was a little small. Um, and so they took a really strong point. And so even today, they very, it's really hard to find vaccine misinformation on that platform. Um, but that's just one platform, you know? Um, and so I think part of it is not just, you know, what does what each individual platform do, but like what it, all platforms do. And particularly, we have to think about our major platforms. You know, we're never going to get to the point where we can really, I think, moderate a space like Telegram or Gab or uh, other platforms that are really sort of saying we're against, we're not going to do any moderation in those or even like WhatsApp. But I think we need to think about where, like, one, where the people are. Um, and we know that there is this cross platform component. Social media is undeniably a part of this equation, right? But even if you were to say delete every single if I had a big button right here that I could hit and like delete every single social media platform and be off everyone's phones, there was no logins. It's just, it's gone. You would still have people who are vaccine hesitant. And I think you would still be people who are going to be predispositioned or still have questions about vaccines. There is a lot we need to do to address that issue as well. So certainly social media has aided in the way that we form communities and spaces and connect with people and get that access to that information. The, the thing that I, I often explain to people is that it's not just, you know, exposure to vaccine misinformation because me and my colleagues see vaccine misinformation all the time, every day. <laughs> uh, people at the Center for Informal like see misinformation about a variety of topics all the time. Um, and it's not just exposure to it. Um, and so if it's not just exposure, which we do know, like, because people see something, people maybe not, like, that's why it's, we need to think about this as a multifaceted thing, you know, a lot of people like to focus on, you know, digital literacy um, and digital skills. And I think that's absolutely really important, but I need to think that like, there's also focusing on social media platforms, thinking about the way, you know, might even think about like, what are the consequences? What are the repercussions for uh, people who disproportionately share vaccine information? I'm not talking about like, you know, your, your aunt <laughs> who shared a, a meme the other day that was like, oh, it's vaccine. Like, you know, we're not worried about, it. I'm worried about people who are making money and profiting about um, and, and making a brand off of vaccine misinformation, right? What rep repercussions are there for that? There aren't, you know, um, I think, you know, we need to think about how we think about healthcare in this country. If we really want to fix the issue of misinformation, we need to like fix everything. That that's a <laughs> we need to fix everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't, I, I yeah, I, I don't think most people believe that we'll ever fix everything. That we'll ever you know be able to totally remove misinformation from the ecosystem. But I think most people would agree with you that we'd like to arrive at an equilibrium where it doesn't look like there are massive multi-billion dollar companies that are profiting from it and that are exacerbating the problem. That, that seems to me to be the line we should draw. Yeah. I mean, did you ever read or see like National Enquirer magazines? Uh, like you go in the grocery store, you see the National Enquirer. And sure. I remember as, as a kid seeing like Bat Boy on there. And there is some sort of entertainment, right? You know, there are, I think, you know, less, there's definitely malicious you know, mis or disinformation and things that are less so, right? Like we think about our parodies or our jokes, right? And I think it became, what was easier, I think, for some people to kind of like toe the line on that. Like there's surely maybe someone out there who believes Bat Boy is real. But I think most people who saw that were like, no, there is no Bat Boy that's like hiding out in a cave or in the basement of a celebrity's house. But, you know, it's, 
it's a really tough time out there. I think, you know, it's not just an information issue. I think we need to think about it as a community issue as well. A lot of people who end up even falling into like the anti-vax space find a really loving, kind, wonderful community of people and find it really difficult to leave. You know, and I've talked to people who were in that spaces and then chose to leave. And they said it was really tough because you find a group of people, friends, um, people that you trust in your life. Uh, and at some point you have to decide if you're going to leave and, and decide the vaccines are, are good and safe and efficacious. You have to like also leave a, a community of your friends. Right. And I think that is a, a added mode. Your, 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 your modern day conspiracy theorist isn't a dude downstairs in a basement with a bunch of red string, you know, it's friends and family, you know, it's people who have, uh, <laughs> and I'm not, <laughs> uh, who have found also community in, in, with each other who have these things. Um, and I think people are, are generally really worried. You know, I think, you know, anyone who is vaccine hesitant is, is genuinely concerned either about their own health or the health of their loved ones or the health of their kids, you know? And I think that is a, everything about trying to fix something, you know, I, I don't think it's just saying like, oh, calling other people are idiots and other people they're wrong. Um, that's not the way to go about it. I even had a, um, a friend of a friend who I've known for years who only recently we were able to convince to get vaccinated, you know, um, and he's someone who's always been, you know, familiar with my work. So he's like, oh, you know, anti-vaxxers are ridiculous. And I just couldn't get him to get <laughs> to vaccinate, um, even knowing what I do and what I've done. And he's like, oh, you know, you're going to have your biases. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I think he kind of got sucked into a community of other people who are also vaccine hesitant. And he found solace in that. So I think about, we need to continue. So I think, even if you could, like a lot of people ask me, like, I still have a loved one. So this is the big question I get, right? What do I do? I have a loved one that shares vaccine misinformation. Um, I have ones of people in my family and my friends who still won't get vaccinated. And I think it's really easy to just want to say like, oh, just cut them out of their life. And I don't think that's the right approach because you have the most power in that, like in the sense that me as someone who doesn't know that person at all, it's not what I say that has like you're you as a friend or a family as a love someone with a personal tie you're actually going to carry more weight and trying to get them out of that space and continuously try to um, extend the arm listen to them don't just say that they're wrong or that they're getting bad information I think it's really tough to try to facilitate a healthy productive conversation to try to get them to look at other sources or maybe get them to start questioning the sources that they are trusting and really try to continuously encourage that person to get vaccinated or look at other things and I think it's it's really tough and that's not going to happen overnight um and the same way that I think that no one becomes anti-vaccine overnight you're not going to convince somebody who's anti-vaccine to become pro overnight it, it is a long trying conversation as it took a friend of mine like a year <laughs> to do so um so I don't think people are entirely lost I recognize that you have just started your role at Twitter and this interview isn't endorsed by Twitter or, uh, you know, relevant to, to the work you've actually done there. But if you will, just what enticed you about the opportunity to work on Birdwatch and how do you imagine taking your research forward into your new role? Uh, I think for many, many years, I have sat comfortably in the Ivy Tower, if you will. I haven't didn't go to an Ivy League, but, you know, uh, it's, it's, I think, Many academics, uh, including myself, find it really easy to criticize a social media platform. And, you know, there's a lot to criticize by all means. I will always <laughs> tell you all the things that these companies have done wrong. But uh, when the opportunity came up to potentially work um, on Birdwatch, which was something that seemed really interesting as a way to help combat misinformation, provide context, because what we know about 
misinformation is not always as clear cut as like this is true and this is false. There's a lot of content that stays up because it might be true, but maybe decontextualized from the original source or its meaning. And so sometimes you just need the additional context of it, right? So imagine someone put a quote out and the quote makes a person look a particular way, but you're like, oh, this was a quote because they were like maybe reading or talking to kids you know, and uh, maybe that's why they're not using the most technical language. So instead of that, it's like, oh, this person's an idiot because the way they're describing phenomena, it's like, oh, it's because they're explaining a phenomenon to a kid and things like that. So given the opportunity to then take what I know about misinformation, social media, particularly about vaccines, but also other like science topics, uh, I found it really exciting to be able to try to apply that in a domain that I felt uh, I could potentially do some good. You know, I will continuously still be critical of social media platforms, but um if I can potentially take what I do um, know and use that towards good and trying to help fix some of the issues we see on social media platforms, why not? Well, I will hope that we can catch up again at some point as you get further into this new experiment and we'll be able to find out how it's going. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I, I am not a representative or spokesperson for Twitter or for Birdwatch or anything like that. But uh, from what I do know is that you know everything is open so you can read uh, everything that I know about Birdwatch currently is uh, what you see online. <laughs> uh, but all the data is online. Um, it does seem really promising. And, you know, I'm excited to be part of a team that is trying to do something to help solve the issue. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.